Well, good morning. Uh, thank you, Pastor Chris, for uh, the opportunity, the hospitality, and some rest this weekend for my wife and I. Uh, as he already read, we're in Luke chapter 18, and um, we will dive straight in. But before we do, uh, I'd like to pray over the word again and also our time. Uh, Father, we thank you for your grace. We uh, thank you for the opportunity to be able to uh, worship you through song, uh, worship you uh, in life and so uh, we see the worship service as a total act of worship and so Lord would you uh, hide me behind your hand so that your people would see you high and lifted up Lord we understand that uh, if you do not give me the wisdom the understanding the clarity uh, and the concision of speech uh, if the spirit does not move uh, this sermon will fall flat on his face and so God I ask for your uh, hand to meet us here and to up blow some wind underneath ourselves to uplift us and because uh, we're often plagued by discouragement we're often um, weighed down by the injustice that this world often perpetuates and so God we just ask for your hand we ask for you to meet us right here in this moment by the power of your spirit in Jesus name and all God's people say it amen, amen. Uh, I don't intend to be before you long uh, especially if you help me preach a little bit this morning, I definitely won't hold you. Uh, but, you know, if I don't hear a single amen or a deacon hum, you know, hmm, you know, or, or, or a nod or something, you know, I'll just, I'll just keep on preaching. I'll just keep on. I'm kidding. Uh, so let's look at our text and uh, let's begin. Uh, many of us, we have heard this prayer. Our Father, uh, who art in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Uh, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. And this prayer is one that I have been teaching my children over the last few months, and it's beautiful to hear them recite that with me and say that along with me. Um, and for some of us in here, right, whether if you're a Christian or not, you have probably heard this prayer. Uh, many of us were taught this prayer through sports. If you've played any type of sport, many of us opened up um, our sporting events with this prayer. We ended our sporting events with this prayer. I remember before every game playing high school football, we would gather around and pray this very same prayer. Not only are you familiar with the disciples' prayer, but we are familiar with another one. Right now I lay me down to sleep. <laughs> I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Uh, for some of us, this was our first introduction to prayer. These prayers taught us that God was not God was the one who only one who could do anything to alter our situation. It it laid the foundation for us that God was the one that we needed for sustenance, for provision, for protection. Uh, but there are some of us who didn't grow up with models of prayer. Um, prayer was the last thing on our minds. If we can be honest, our mindset was that I don't need prayer. 
Uh, I'm good. My my life is going just fine, right? I have money in the bank account uh, for, for, for you all that are close to the beach, which is I'm envious of that. You know, you just go out to the beach. You can do whatever you want to do. You can live life however you want it. And you know, in the South, we're, we're just good. Our life is good. We don't have any problems. We don't have any struggles. And as long as we don't have any problems or any struggles, we don't need God. And some of us have even heard people go as far as to say, I don't pray because I don't need God. Uh, because, you know, the essence of prayerlessness is the belief that we don't need God. It, a refusal to pray is actually a refusal to submit to God. Uh, like I like to say it, uh, prayerlessness is a protest to dependence on God. When we don't pray, we're telling God that we do not need you, that we can do life on our own, that we can take care of our own lives, that we can raise our own children, that we can go to school and as long as we have an education, we will be okay. And so many of us have been here. We've been in this moment in our lives where we've been prayerless. And some of us have even got to the point where we have thrown in the towel on prayer. Uh, because there are circumstances, even emotions, that lead us to grow weary of prayer. You see, whether we are experts in prayer today or not, uh, we all have come to the moment where we have got tired of praying. That it seemed as if every time we prayed, it just hit the ceiling. It seems as every time we try to pray, we just cannot connect to God. One of the things that really chokes out our desire to pray is discouragement. You know, I don't know about you, but when I think about inflation, <laughs> when I think about these gas prices, uh, when I think about the amount of marriages that are on the rocks when I think about um, the fentanyl overdoses that continue to happen in our communities and in our cities. I get tired of praying, y'all. I get discouraged. And that discouragement leads to, God, what is the point of praying when it seems like our communities, when it seems like our families, our churches are no different? And especially when we see the depression being at an all-time high, that we live in a world where we're, as most, we're the most connected that we've ever been and the loneliest we've ever been. Social media has connected us to everything and everyone, but we still feel lonely. Because this leads us to be discouraged, because why pray when life seems to be telling us that people are living in utter hopelessness? That nothing is going to change our situation anyway. Not only does discouragement block our desire to pray, but so does fatalism. Uh, fatalism is common for some who embrace the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Uh, that believe God is sovereign over the affairs of life. That he, his providential hand is taking care of all things. That there is nothing that goes on in this life that God, that surprises God, that shocks God, that alerts God to anything. Uh, but some that believe in the sovereignty of God are actually fatalists. You know, fatalism in, manifests itself in comments like, uh, let the chips fall where they may. Uh, this type of mentality causes us to lose heart uh, 
in our prayer life because fatalism makes us default to what? Giving up on prayer. Uh, for we start to believe that prayer doesn't change things anyway since God is sovereign, which means that he already knows what's going to happen and he's already determined everything to happen. No, that type of attitude is not someone that's resting in the sovereignty of God, but it is actually someone who is confusing sovereignty and fatalism. They're mistaking God's sovereignty for fatalism as if God is just in heaven and we are robots just at his beck and call. Uh, but let's make it perhaps even more devastating to set the stage. Our desire to pray also wanes. It also uh, as if we get a kick in the knee and we, our knees get weak and we don't want to pray anymore when injustice reigns. Uh, injustice is painful, y'all. Uh, people are often paralyzed by the pain of injustice. Injustice is extremely painful when the injustice derives from the powerful in the place of power, in the place of authority where justice is to be upheld. If any of you are familiar with the Bible at all this morning, you would know that uh, there's a book uh, in the Old Testament called Ecclesiastes. And it is this author, the teacher, is making this argument that all is vanity, that all is meaningless. And he gets to chapter four at the pinnacle of his um uh, Argument, and he is talking about how um, wisdom is vanity, riches are vanity, sexual relations are vanity. He's going on and on, and then he gets to the mountaintop of his argument, and he says that even in the place of justice, there was wickedness, and even in the place of righteousness, there was wickedness, because that's the place where justice is to happen where justice is to be served but often that's the place where those who have the power to exact justice do the opposite and they bring pain and hurt and justice is also painful because all of humanity is born with a passion for justice you have heard the chance no justice no peace you can finish it for me right no justice, no peace. We long for justice. Prominent theologian N.T. Wright insists that a passion for justice is what, it, is what it means to be human. In his book, Simply Christian, he writes, a sense of justice comes with the kit of being human. He adds, and yet we have a sense that justice itself slips through our fingertips. Sometimes it works, often it doesn't. Innocent people get convicted. Guilty people are let off. The bullies and those who can bribe their way out of trouble get away with it. People hurt others badly and walk away laughing. Victims don't always get compensated. Sometimes they spend the rest of their lives coping with sorrow, hurt, and bitterness. In other words, our innate passion for justice makes injustice painful. And the piercing pain of injustice often causes us to give up on prayer. Perhaps this is precisely the way Jesus' disciples were feeling in Luke 18. 
The oppressive reign of the Romans had become suffocating. So his disciples were ready for the kingdom to come. They wanted their Messiah to come in and overthrow the um, Romans in their oppressive power to cure the injustice they have long endured. His disciples are tired, y'all. And even the Pharisees are tired. They wanted to be free. Persevering in prayer was the last thing on their minds. They wanted justice and they wanted it now. So Jesus speaks. And when he speaks, he said, instead of giving up on prayer, he says, you ought always to pray and not lose heart. These were words for the disciples and the Pharisees. But within these reverberating words, there was a lesson for us. You see, persistent prayer is essential. Even when we're surrounded by discouragement, injustice, even if we're influenced by fatalism or not, we cannot lose heart. In fact, persistent prayer empowers us to endure. I'm going to say that again. That's the point of the sermon. Persistent prayer empowers us to endure. You see, the kingdom of God is marked by persistent prayer, but not prayer that prays about any frivolous thing. Prayer that energizes faithful endurance. Prayer that trusts in the vindication of God. Prayer that rests in the uh, in, uh, justice of God. Prayer that anchors oneself in the promise of God. The, the promise of the consummated kingdom that one day Christ will come again. That one day Jesus will crack open the skies and he will come down with his just reign and reign over all nations and all people who he has redeemed into his covenant family where justice will be supreme where injustice will be closed where corrupt power and authority will cease uh, that is the day that we are looking forward now let us look at luke 18 jesus's fame is spreading and if you don't mind, we're talking Luke 18. This is a parable, so we're telling a story this morning. So as I often tell people, I'm going to try not to destory the story. I'm simply going to tell a story. And as I tell this story, I want you to peruse with me. I want you to feel the twist and the turns. I, I want you to see Jesus walking this morning. Can't you see him walking? Can't you see him on that dirt road of Galilee? His fame is quite obvious to everyone they they're hearing of this messiah who is opening blind eyes he he's opening deaf ears he's causing the lame to walk he's restoring he's healing he's casting out demons wouldn't we hear of this jesus if he was living today I mean, if someone was going around casting out demons and healing folk, we would be lining up. We would be taking our ailments. We would be taking our, our, we would be seeing people roll up in wheelchairs and say, Jesus, I believe and I need you to make me walk. 
And so Jesus is doing all of these things uh, because he's showing us what the kingdom of God is like. You see, in the kingdom of God, there's only restoration. There, there is only healing. There is only salvation. There is only liberation when the king comes because this king that, Jeru that is Israel has been waiting on is the king of the Jews. And because he's healing, he's showing that wherever the king is, the kingdom is. And so he's on his way to Jerusalem. And many of you know, are familiar with Luke as he narrates his story. Jesus being on his way to Jerusalem is actually Jesus on his way to the cross. To die, to be crucified for the sins of the world. And so he's walking for 17 chapters. He's been walking. Can you see Jesus' feet? They're worn. They're tattered because he's walking for 17 chapters. That's a long time. <laughs> Can you see the meandering rivers as he's going? And then can't you see the crowds that are around him? It's getting smaller and smaller because he's going to the cross. And he must do it alone. But there seems to be these group of people that continue to come around Jesus. And, and it's those Pharisees again. Uh, they hate Jesus, but there's something that you got to understand here. I'm going to pull up briefly. That even those who hate on Jesus cannot help but be captivated by Jesus. Because there's something about him that is intriguing, that is captivating. That when you see someone with such power and that can speak with such authority, but have so much humility, it draws us in. And so these Pharisees in Luke 17, they come to Jesus and they say, when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus says, well, the kingdom is coming in ways that you cannot observe. Because the kingdom is not, cannot be measured by external factors, even though Jesus gives us signs through external factors. He says, no, the kingdom of God is within us. And so as he is instructing people in the secrets of the kingdom, it's only those who are part of the kingdom that understand this. And he's instructing by what we call parables. And so this parable that he is about to launch into before he gets there in Luke 17, he says, there's coming a day where the fullness of the kingdom is coming. And when that kingdom comes, all will be made right. That the son of man will descend from heaven and he will come and get his people as we will meet him in the air for victory over all those who come against the just reign of our king. But now in light of this eschatological reign, Jesus is telling another parable. He says in a certain city, there was a judge and this judge did not fear God, nor did he have any regard for man. Here is a judge who has the power, but misuses his power. Uh, this judge doesn't, he sees man as insignificant. He sees God as someone who is not to be feared. But not only is he an unjust judge who does not fear God, but he's a foolish judge. Because any man who does not fear God proves himself to be a fool. Can't you see this judge in his courtroom? Time and time again, he is 
hitting the gavel and administering wrong justice. He is, his verdicts are lacking justice. He's constantly turning the widow away. He's constantly making his um, judgment calls based on receiving bribes. Isn't that our world today? Our courtrooms are filled with unjust judges. They don't fear God. They see man as having no value. Some of you are saying, no, our judges are pretty good. Well, if that's you, let me help you a little bit this morning. What about the judge in Emmett Till's court case? What about the judge by the name of Thomas Maloney who was known for letting uh, mafia members and murderers off as long as he received a bribe? You see, we can relate to exactly this text because we live in a world where unjust judges constantly exact what unjust laws where they are filled with sin, filled with a lack of fear for God, filled with uh, uh, seeing children, seeing humans as not image bearers, but seeing someone, seeing us as scum of the earth and not worthy of value and respect. And here in this moment, all of us can relate to the heartache of an unjust judge, but there was a widow in the same city of this unjust judge. You see it right there in the text. And this widow has come to the point where she's fed up. She's tired of being oppressed. She's tired of being stiffed armed by society. She's tired of being relegated to the sidelines. That every time she tries to get into the game, the coaches are telling her to go sit back down. And for many of you, if you're familiar with the text, you will see that a widow is seen as the most vulnerable of society and she has to go before an unjust judge it doesn't seem as if things are going to go out in her favor it doesn't seem as things are going to work out for her but she says I don't care if he's unjust I'm tired of my adversary getting the best of me and some scholars note that her adversary was familiar that this widow was not able to pay for a bribe. She was not able to take care of life necessities. And so more than likely, this adversary of hers has used her, has taken advantage of her and has taken her land from her because she's a widow, meaning that she used to have a husband, that, but that husband has passed away. So, but that husband used to have a what? A land that they lived on. But now she is without a husband. And it seems that her children are nowhere to be found. So this adversary takes advantage of her. But this widow comes to the courtroom one day. She goes through the security. She drops her things off at TSA. You know how we drop them off at the airport. And she goes through the scanners and nothing and everything is fine. And, and the policemen are saying, now, you know that this judge is unjust. Like, why are you going in there? You know that he's not going to rule in your favor. But she says, get out of my way. Be quiet. She goes into the courtroom 
and she says, give me justice against my adversary. And based on the text, we would see that she was overlooked the first time. But this is a persistent widow. She leaves and she comes back the next day. Give me justice against my adversary the next day. Give me justice against my adversary. Give me justice against my adversary. I hope you're getting the point. Give me justice against my adversary. You say, you're getting on my nerves this morning, Pastor. I am because I want you to feel the story that this widow is doing the exact thing that I'm doing this morning. Day in and day out, she goes before this judge and says, give me justice. And it comes a point uh, where this widow, this judge is refusing her. She keeps asking, she keeps pleading, and because of her persistence, this judge gives in. He doesn't give her justice because he loves her. He doesn't give her justice because he honors God. He simply gives her justice because she is becoming an inconvenience for him, that she is a source of difficulty for him. The text literally reads in the technical sense, he's saying, that I'm going to give her justice so that she would not give me a black eye by her continued coming. In other words, this is likened to a UFC fighter who is delivering a blow time and time again. And this judge is saying, oh my goodness, I can't take it anymore. If you want justice, I'll give it to you. So that you'll just stop coming to my courtroom and continue to exhaust me and belabor me. Is that you this morning? That you stop asking the Father for the things that you need because you think he's exhausted with you? Have you stopped praying for God to make things right in Wilmington because you think God is tired of hearing your prayers. If that's you, I want you to see in this text that you see this unjust judge is in the position of power. But this widow is in the position of powerlessness. But the widow, the reason why she goes to the judge is because she knows that this unjust judge has the power to change things. Oh, I wish y'all all walk with me this morning. You see, this widow persists because she believes that this judge has the power to change things. And if this widow's persistent asking can move an unjust judge, then how much more does persistent prayer move the hand of our father? What I'm trying to tell you this morning is that persistent prayer works. It makes a difference. That when we go to the Father, when we ask Him to make things right in our marriages, to make things right in our children's lives, to make things right in our cities, that God is listening, that He's looking over the balcony of heaven and He hears everything that we say. And late in the midnight hour, God is going to turn it around, right? It's going to work in your favor. That in a moment, in an instance, God can move his hand. 
and make things work. If you don't believe me, do you remember when he moved his hand and parted the Red Sea? Do you remember when he moved his hand in the Old Testament and saved his people time and time again? Do you remember when Elijah, when God moved his hand and fire came down? and judge all the idols of this world. What I'm trying to tell you is that keep praying. Keep asking the Lord. Because you're coming through some transitions that you're going to have to find a space. And I know that this text doesn't really have anything to do with that, but I want to pull up and encourage you to pray that even if you think God doesn't hear you, he hears you. Even when we don't feel God, we still must persist in prayer. Now, because God has the power to change things, it ought to motive us, motivate us to persist in prayer. We're almost there. To continue coming to the Father. Why? Because God will vindicate his people. That's why this persistent widow goes to the unjust judge because she says he can vindicate me. And we have a just father in heaven who is eager, who is ready to vindicate us. If you don't believe me, I want to give you a little redemptive history of God's vindicating power. Do you remember Joseph? Joseph was sold by his brothers, sold into slavery, ends up going to Potiphar's house and is unjustly thrown into prison for false accusations. While he's in prison, the butler and they forget him and do not tell the Pharaoh about him, but God ends up vindicating Joseph. When Joseph is the one that delivers the dream to Pharaoh, and now he's second in command. Do you remember in the Exodus, as we've already talked a little bit about it, as you see Israel, they're being in their slavery, they are being, their labor is, they're, they're working for free, they are being taxed, they're being worked to the bone, and you see Moses, and that God tells Moses that he's going to vindicate his people. And he vindicates his people when he parts the Red Sea and causes the Red Sea to collapse on the Egyptians. Y'all not with me yet. Y'all not tracking with me yet. So I'm going to keep on going. Do you remember David where Goliath was taunting God's people? And God stood in the gap for David and vindicated David and Israel against Goliath. Do you remember Daniel, where Daniel was put into the lion's den, and God vindicated Daniel by stepping into the fire with Daniel? Oh, that's good news. That means even when you're in the fire, God will step in the fire with you. Do you remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? When they, I got them twisted, sorry, when they were thrown <laughs> into the fire, and God stepped in the fire with them. He vindicated them as well. 
And then do you remember Jesus on the cross where God vindicated him over Satan? And do you remember three days later that where all of hell, that all of Satan and his demons thought that the victory was theirs? Jesus, the tomb was opened by the power of the Spirit and he stepped out the tomb. God vindicated Jesus. And so I'm trying to tell you this morning that God will vindicate you. That even in a moment where you think that all things are going against you, when your enemies rise up against you, God will stand in the gap for you. God will stand before you and God will vindicate you. And there is an enemy that is the greatest of enemies and his name is Satan. That even if you don't have an enemy that is a human being, you have an enemy and it's called Satan. And he seeks and around looking to whom he may devour. He's trying to figure out who he can kill their faith and kill their joy. Some of you know what that's like. Some of you might be in a situation now where Satan, you feel like he's getting the best of you. Oh, but there's good news this morning. That even Satan, there is coming a day for him that God will stand in the gap for you against him. And he's standing in the gap now. That every day he comes accusing you of who you are. Saying you sinned against God. He lies and says God does not hear you when you pray to him. Jesus stands there and he says, Father, I paid the price for them. Jesus stands there for us and he prays for us when we get tired of praying. And so what I'm trying to tell you this morning, that not only will God vindicate you against people, but God will even vindicate you against Satan. That through the cross, Jesus has triumphed over the evil one that he's crushed his head. That through the cross, he has disarmed him openly, making a shame of him. That through the cross, that Jesus has delivered the final death blow to Satan. And there's coming a day when Jesus comes again, that Satan will be tossed into the lake of fire. And he will not be able to accuse you of anything anymore. Because he will ultimately, his destination, his fate will be sealed, will be determined by the hand of Jesus. Now let me finish up so y'all can go on to your cookout. <laughs> not only will God vindicate us, but God's slow vindication is not without purpose. As God's people cry day and night to him, he is listening. He is not exhausted with our cries for justice. This widow is crying day and night. That even when life is weighing us down. When we see injustice all over this world, we can name them, but there's too much to name. We can start to feel like David, how long, oh Lord? How, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Some of you know, and we say to the Lord, how long will young women and young men be trafficked? How long will babies be aborted in the womb? 
Lord, Lord, how long will people continue to get shot down based on their color of skin? How long, O oh Lord, will it seem as if segregation continues to rule and determine how our communities are shaped and formed and even our churches? We cry, how long, oh Lord, will our children continue to be shot in school? Isn't that our world? That we cry, how long? And I want you to hear the words of our Lord. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you. He will give justice to them speedily. That God's slow vindication is not without purpose. That we don't know if it's because he is trying to strengthen his people or he's allowing for people to repent of their sin. I can't tell you the answer this morning. But what I can tell you that Jesus is coming again. And that this revelation of the Son of God will be the greatest news for us and that God's justice will meet injustice and many of you know that we can say to all injustice in this world prepare to meet your God oh what devastating words that there's coming a day where the one that's seated on the right hand of the Father will come. And he's coming in vindication. So we do not have to revenge ourselves. We do not have to take matters in our own hand. And I'm not saying that we do not advocate, that we do not vote, that we do not push against the injustice of the world. I'm not saying if we see people traffic which is a major problem in our city I'm not saying that we don't make avenues and ways to get people out of those situations no what I'm saying is that we do work but as we do work we promise and we we trust rather in the promise of God's vindication that those who persist in prayer God will come and when he comes his just reign will be enthroned on his church that the new heavens and the new earth will come down from heaven I know you have heard the hymn I'll fly away uh, sorry I have bad news God is coming to us <laughs> left behind messed our minds up <laughs> it says we're meeting him in the air we're meeting him in the air for him to come and reign here and so why peep the words of your name, Restoration Church? Because restoration is coming. That you might not fully grasp it here. That you might not fully taste it here in Wilmington. But there's coming a day where this beach will still be here. And all that is broken in your city will be made whole. All the defrauded will be repaired by the hand of our Savior. You see, this parable teaches that citizens of God's kingdom need to give themselves to persistent prayer. It kindles a faith within them that endures hardship. 
The faith that the kingdom of God requires is one of persistent prayer in the face of injustice. And I'm about to close my sermon, church. And as I close it, I want to encourage you with these words. You know, what looks like the triumph of injustice really is the promise of justice. That the triumph if of injustice will give way to the promise of justice. And so I'm closing this sermon the, way, the same way that Jesus closed this parable. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will the Son of Man find faith? A faith that endures to the end. Will the Son of Man find faith? A faith that did not waver in the face of injustice and oppression. Will the Son of Man find faith? A faith that rests in God's power to vindicate. Will the Son of Man find faith? A faith that is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. I wish y'all would help me. Will the Son of Man find faith? A faith that is not accompanied with just talk but works. Will the Son of Man find faith? A faith that is held on to hope in the promise of the consummated kingdom. Will the Son of Man find faith? A faith that is evidenced through persistent prayer. Or will he find a faith that gave up? Will he find the people who said the injustice was too heavy? I couldn't keep praying. I couldn't keep asking. I didn't want to beat you up with the word this morning. I just wanted to encourage you that our Lord says persistent prayer because persistent prayer works. And if you ever doubt it, return to this text and you'll see that God is not exhausted. That God is not slow concerning his promise. He is faithful to do what he says he'll do. And Jesus, we thank you for your good news of persistent prayer. May we be a people where you find faith. In Jesus' name, amen.